0: For
1: those who fish, this is the Drake Cast.
0: He was tying feathers on a hook.
1: I'll do a hopper with a hopper dropper with a dropper hopper.
0: The river was like a woman. It could be a disco midge, it could be a beadhead.
1: I'm your host, Elliot Adler. This episode of the Drake Cast is made possible by our good friends at Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures and Scott Flyrods. On to the show. Alright, can everybody hear me? About six months ago, I found myself in an auditorium in Bozeman, Montana.
0: Well, welcome to the 2017 annual Montana State University's Library's Trout and Salmonid lecture.
1: The place was packed. Rows of scruffy dudes in Sims hats and women in flannel squirmed around in anticipation as we waited for the main speaker, who happens to be a bit of a celebrity in the fishing world.
2: In addition to catching fish on his world travels. He's had the misfortune of
1: catching malaria. He's been jailed as a suspected spy. He's almost drowned. He survived a plane crash, had a close encounter with an Alaskan bear, and he found himself facing the wrong end of a gun. One can't help but wonder what perils and adventures lie ahead for this gentleman. So please join me in welcoming Jeremy Wade. If you aren't familiar with Jeremy Wade or the show River Monsters on Animal Planet, you've probably been living under a rock. But anyways, Jeremy Wade is this hyper-masculine dude with a chiseled face and a salt and pepper beard. And he travels around the world chasing dangerous so-called man-eating fish.
2: I'm entering the lair of the beasts that have escaped me. Sometimes the only way to hunt the monster is to become the monster.
1: And when I initially heard that Jeremy Wade was going to be the speaker at the Trout and Samanid lecture series at MSU, I was a little miffed. I mean, though he may have caught a timon in Mongolia and hooked into a salmon or two in Russia and Alaska, when you really break it down, in my opinion, the dude's a bait chucker with a camera crew.
2: Good evening. Uh, Wonderful to see such a a great crowd. I was expecting maybe half a dozen people could get a little fireside chat.
1: but over the next 45 minutes, I realized that Jeremy Wade is much more than just a bait checker. He's concerned about the same issues that we routinely address in the Drake, such as pollution, dams affecting natural migrations, and declining fish populations around the world. I don't wanna give too much away because Jeremy Wade is about to tell you all of this for himself. So here's Jeremy Wade's speech that he gave in April at MSU's annual Trout and Samanid lecture series. It's worth your time.
2: Um, obviously, I'm very honoured to be asked to speak here. To be honest as well, I'm also a little bit um, surprised because when you consider the, the art of angling as it is um, practised here in Montana, I'm sort of right at the other end of the spectrum. Um, here, you go after these beautiful uh, jewel-like creatures and you're using, you know, you're using something like that.
1: He fumbles on stage with a plastic bag and then holds up a fly that not even the folks in the front row could see.
2: a betis. Is that right? Whereas I tend to fish for these, these big brown things with teeth and tentacles. And I'm normally I'm normally using something like that. But, um...
1: And now he's holding up what could be Captain Hook's prosthetic hand.
2: This is a size 10 hook. Um, it's crimped to 135 pound multi-strand wire. Big old swivel there, I've normally got 100 pound monofilaments on there. Bait is normally a lump of dead fish and I, and I sort of put about anything between 4 ounces and a pound of weight on there. And instead of doing what you do, you know, I I'm, I'm, not, I'm not skillfully presenting my offering to all the likely lives. I just, I just chuck it out. And, uh, and um, I just sit back and wait. so um, <laughs> Montana also, of course, is is synonymous with sublime angling literature, whereas I come from the, the sort of the noisy, shouty end of the, the TV, of the of the entertainment spectrum. Um, I've even got my own catchphrase, uh, and you you don't get any tackier than that. Um, so what can I possibly have to say that might be of interest here? Well, As anglers know, um, you have the surface of things and then you have what goes on beneath the surface. And and below the noisy surface of the the TV programme that I present, the the distracting flashy ripple, there's another level of content which we smuggle in there and which many viewers tap into. Uh, It's a celebration of fish, the places where they live, and much more. Perhaps there's something from these deeper depths that I could fish up and talk about. But then I had another thought. Um, This could be a good time and a good place to make a public apology. Um, The first thing I should apologize for is this talk does have a very long preamble. Uh, But when we do finally get to the subject, the health of the world's rivers, um, you'll see why the preamble was necessary because it explains why I came to choose this topic. Um, I could also very quickly, while I'm here, apologise for that catchphrase, although it is off-topic. Um, it might make you more likely to see me as a serious person with a serious message. So while I publicly cringe with em- embarrassment, somebody please quote my catchphrase to me, or even yell it out, if you like. Fish on. Fish on. That's a fish, that's a fish on. Exactly. <laughs> um, and, anyway, fish on. The reason I do that, of course, is partly to inject some some drama into the occasion. Um, But more functionally, uh, it is is to wake the cameraman up. Um, (laughs) If you can imagine, we've been sitting there for hours and hours, and everybody's attention is wandering, apart from mine, of course. But the thing is, when that take comes, we want to get that moment on camera. Now, some of you might be scratching your heads now. How can the camera record something that happened before the cameraman woke up? The answer is this magical feature called pre-roll. The camera is always rolling, but instead of storing everything, um, all those hours of nothing happening, it only holds on to the last seven seconds in a temporary cache. Um, Hit the record button and in effect you reach back in time and those seven seconds are front loaded onto your clip. Um, This does have its downside. Locked away in this secret cupboard somewhere is there's footage of me, and in, uh, the camera's behind me. But uh, in my right hand, I've got this screaming rod, and um, let's just say I'm multitasking. There's, there's, uh... <laughs> anyway, um, so that's my that's my catchphrase apology. But what's the big thing that I want to apologise for? Well, it has been said that I make people unnecessarily scared of what's in the water. That I paint. A picture of a dystopian world where all the finned creatures have got it in for the human race. And given half a chance, they'll employ whatever means they have at their disposal to inflict pain or death, preferably both, um, on any unfortunate biped that comes their way. If they're too small to bite off a limb, not equipped to stab or electrocute, they'll swim up an orifice and devour us from the inside. <laughs> Well, that can be the impression from a distracted viewing of the show. But anyone properly paying attention will not come to this conclusion. The death or injury incidents that we report, and we lovingly reconstruct them in vivid, gurgling technicolor, because this is TV after all, are for the most part extremely rare. You've got to be really, really unlucky to be speared by a needlefish, uh, rammed by an arapaima, or get your head swallowed by a catfish. I do accept, though, that the programs are very much about fear, and that's what helps us to hook viewers, because we've all been programmed by generations upon generations of natural selection to pay attention to things out there in the environment that could harm us. So I'm not apologizing for demonizing fish, because I don't do that. Having said that, there was that time when I said that salmon could be possible man killers. Um, surely that was stretching things a little bit too far. (laughs) This was in an episode set in Alaska and I was talking about a hypothetical set of very specific circumstances. Somebody is wading on the edge of powerful flow, a big fish takes, the fisherman stumbles on a slippery rock, cold water starts to fill up his waders, the next thing he knows he's being swept away downstream and slowly sinking under. Now, there's an obvious way to avoid this ending badly, and I can imagine all the non-anglers shouting at their TV sets. But to anglers, it all makes perfect sense, because the one thing we all know is we're never going to let go of that rod, are we? (laughs) Um, So I'm not apologising for hypothetical killer salmon. What I feel compelled to apologise for is something much more serious. What I do in my programmes is portray a false reality not in the way that many people might think when watching a so-called reality show fake danger fake injury fake fish but something much wider than this um, a fake picture of the world if you watch the programs I make you'll get the impression that pretty much every river that you go to particularly in wilder parts of the world you're going to find fish capable of biting your leg off or dragging you under you're going to find large predatory fish This couldn't be further from the truth. Most places you go, if you were just going to stick a pin in the map at random and travel at random, you're not going to find anything. To make sure that I have a realistic chance of getting a result in the course of a three-week shoot, during which I have a maximum of 11 days fishing, but it's more commonly just four or five, we have to do our research very thoroughly indeed. Because without a fish, we don't have a program, and that really concentrates the mind. If I kept going to different exotic places and catching nothing, nobody would watch and I'd be out of a job. So I'm extremely selective about where I go. So finding big fish is hard, is that all I'm saying? Every angler knows that. But it's not just big fish being hard to find that I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is how they are much, much rarer now than they were in the past. Not the ancient past, but the very recent past. Fish have been around on this planet for about 530 million years. The decline I'm talking about has happened in just the last hundred years or so. How do I know this? Because my research involves digging out historical reports and talking to the people who live on the river, asking them about how things are now and how they remember them in the past. It's a very patchy record, it's anecdotal and not very scientific but the picture that emerges is clear and alarming. These are large animals, some of them larger than people, and they're disappearing before our eyes. Or rather, they're not disappearing before our eyes because they live in dark, cloudy water. They're mostly invisible, and their disappearance is invisible. So there's no publicity. There are no campaigns to save them like there are for whales, tigers, sea turtles. There's just a fragmented oral database, mostly unheard, in the form of old people's memories, which cover a period, period, more or less, of, of this decline. But when the old fishermen pass away, with their oral histories undocumented, there will be no meaningful record of how the world's rivers were before the fish went missing. And in the absence of earlier data, we end up taking the way things are now as our baseline, as normal. It's what's known as baseline shift. And its effect is to normalise the abnormal. Let me do a quick global roundup of how much things have shifted in this short time period that I'm talking about. Um, my first trip after exotic fish was in 1982 to India. In India, the iconic river fish is the Marcia.
1: Behind Jeremy quickly. appears a photo of a huge golden carp with scales the size of poker chips.
2: There are two main species uh, of, of Marcia. The humpback Marcia in the south, and there is the Himalayan or golden Marcia in the north, which is more streamlined in shape. Uh, The Marcia is a member of the carp family, uh, characterised by its coat of large gleaming scales, powerful prehensile mouth, and its ability to live in raging white water. And although it might not look like it, it's a very effective predator. It does have teeth, but they're at the back of the throat. There's a lot of literature about Marcia written by British colonial officials who lived in India (coughs) pre-independence in the early 1900s. These authors tell many tales of expensive salmon gear getting smashed up by unseen giants, but they also landed a lot and photographed their catches. Today, such catches are unimaginable. In most places that were written about, you'd be lucky to catch anything at all. By the time I went to India, Big fish were confined to just a few last strongholds. Uh, I managed to catch this 58 pounder, I had another one of 66, another one of, of 92, but now, 30 years uh, on from that, um, your chance of anything over, over 50 is, uh, is practically zero. North Indian rivers are also home to the hideous goonch catfish. Let's see if I can get this right. There it is. Gunch is the pronunciation.
1: Up pops a photo with him holding a huge catfish.
2: There it is. And what a hideous thing. The fish is pretty ugly, too. Um, (laughs) These were were despised by the colonial colonels, and one writer described them as the vermin of the water. Nowadays, though, you'd be very lucky to even hook one. A better description now would be the underwater yeti. Next, I went to Thailand looking for the Mekong giant catfish. This was the time I was arrested as a suspected spy for poking around where the river forms the border with Laos, armed with a camera and notebook. Under interrogation, I told them that the reason I had travelled thousands of miles to this place was to try to catch a fish, which I was then going to put back. Um, For some reason, (laughs) they didn't believe this. Um, They decided it was an elaborate cover story for something else and confiscated all my film. Um, After they released me, I managed to lose my police escort and I made for the British Embassy in Bangkok, where they told me to leave the country as soon as possible. In my film canisters were undeveloped pictures of what at the time was by far the biggest fish that I'd ever seen. Longer than my outstretched arms and unbelievably deep-bodied, apparently with no eyes until I located them near the corner of the jaw, I'd found my Mekong catfish. Alive, I guess that fish would have weighed about 200 pounds. But this was just uh, the stuffed shell of a fish, moth-eaten and covered in dust. The Mekong giant catfish is unusual because it is, it's not a predator, it's a herbivore. They were once plentiful in the Mekong River, but hardly any are caught there now, a mere handful each year. And they're never caught on a line, or not on the Mekong anyway. You do find pockets of them in captivity, though, in commercial fishing lakes, which serve as unofficial aquatic wildlife reserves. But because of their rarity in the wild, they're listed now as critically endangered. In Africa, there's the goliath tigerfish. I first read about this fish in a book chapter written by a Belgian doctor in the 1940s. He caught them up to 87 and a half pounds and lost many more because these bony-mouthed creatures are masters of spitting the hook. Including one, he lost one that he put at 200 pounds. Since then, infrastructure in the Congo has crumbled away almost to zero. Time, in many respects, has moved backwards in this part of the world. So you'd think this is one fish population that is still at true baseline levels. Not so. It took me three expeditions over six years to catch my first goliath tigerfish. And when we took the gamble to make an episode about them, I fished two weeks for four takes and landed just this one. So even in one of the world's most inaccessible jungles, the picture is of undeniable decline. In South America, the iconic freshwater predator is the arapina. When you talk about the Amazon River, you're talking about a very dynamic and changeable thing. In some places, the water rises and falls by as much as 50 feet over the course of a year. For half the year, huge expanses of forest are semi-submerged, and fish swim through the trees. Then as the water drains, it leaves a multitude of floodplain lakes, of all shapes and sizes, some of which become very shallow and deoxygenated. This is where the arapaima used to rule. Because they can extract oxygen from the air, they gulp at the surface. They can keep actively hunting when other fish are going belly up. So as long as there are small fish to eat, you can get very high densities of big arapaima in small volumes of water, limited by their need for territory, personal space, rather than oxygenation. Many fishermen have told me of seeing arapaima surfacing one after another in places where now you won't see a single one. In the moving water of the Amazon, the river channels, the top fish is, or was, the peraiba catfish. Although it's a catfish, this is not a slow-moving scavenger, but a streamlined beast in some ways reminiscent of a shark. And it's the same story. Fish of any size are very rare now. from just a few very select parts of their former range. What about North America? For me, the fish here most aptly fits the description of river monster is the alligator gar. This is another air gulper, and it used to be found in the Mississippi as far as St. Louis, way up the Ohio, up the Illinois, the Missouri as far as Kansas City, and much of the Arkansas system. Now it's pretty much confined to Texas, Louisiana, and a corner of Mississippi. It's a similar story with Nile Perch, sturgeon species around the world, Chinese paddlefish, the list goes on, building a global picture that's pretty clear. One of dramatically shrunk ranges, and the big fish much rarer. But what does it matter if the big fish are disappearing, beyond making things hard for me. I I used to be a biology teacher, and that's still there in the background. And it it wasn't until just the last few years that the, the wider significance of this started to sink in. The fish that I go for are mostly apex predators. That is to say they're at the top of the food chain, or more correctly, at the apex of the food pyramid. And as any Egyptian architect will tell you, you can't have an apex without having the supporting structure underneath it. What this means is that there are two ways to check for the presence of a healthy food pyramid. You can either sample for all the individual components of the food pyramid, all the fish species, all the crustaceans, the mollusks and the insects, the plants and algae, or you can take a shortcut, sample for the apex predator. In a river, the presence of the apex predator is a great indicator of the health of the river as a whole. So what does the increasing absence of apex predators tell us? It would seem to tell us that the world's rivers are in a bad way. It has been said many times that rivers are the arteries of our planet. It's a nice poetic analogy to the point of being a cliche, and we normally leave it there. But let's dig a little deeper into this. If rivers are the Earth's lifeblood, that makes me a kind of doctor or phlebotomist because what I've been doing for the last 35 years now is taking the planet's blood samples. Let's pursue this analogy a little further. Imagine you just had a blood test and suppose that came back with an abnormal result, something like an abnormally low white cell count. What would be your reaction? Would you just shrug and disregard it? I'm guessing that wouldn't be your reaction. First, that'd be a mixture of shock and disbelief because you look fine and you feel fine. Then you might ask to be tested again to make sure there wasn't some mistake or mix up with the samples. Then when it came back saying the same thing, you'd want more information. you want your doctor to look at your blood test, look at your blood in more detail, at enzymes and antibodies, everything that might give a clue because you want to know what this means. Is it the early warning of something terrible what caused it, and can anything be done. You don't just cover your ears and and hum. This should explain why I feel a growing sense of responsibility to pass on what I've heard and seen. Much of the complacency about our planet's health is down to shortage of information, which in our so-called age of information is supremely ironic. What I've been telling you this evening is my attempt to address that information deficit. But let's not leave it there. Let's imagine for a moment that we decide to take these planetary blood test results as seriously as we take a personal health scare. How did it happen? What does it mean? And can we do anything about it? This is where I start to leave my area of expertise, but given the shortage of other information out there, let me fumble towards some answers.
1: But before Jeremy can fumble towards any answers, let's take a break and hear a few words from our sponsors. This episode is made possible by our friends at Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures.
0: Hi, this is Tom.
1: I called up Yellow Dog employee Tom Melvin to hear if there are a few places where you still have a chance of hooking into the disappearing species that Jeremy Wade mentioned.
0: As far as the the moss seer goes, it's called the Himalayan Outback, and this is actually in northern India. So it's actually a float trip. There's a couple different ways to target them, streamer patterns. Um, you can do some nymph fishing for them as well, and every once in a while you can see some dry fly fishing. For tiger fish, the program that we're currently running is in Tanzania on the Manyara and Ruhudiji rivers. And they actually have two different camps. In between the week, you actually switch camps so you get to see both programs. For the tiger fish, it's primarily throwing big streamers, kind of bait fish imitations. We do use some floating lines, but most of it's like intermediate and sink tips to get a little bit farther down in the water column. And the program where we're operating for Aripama is actually in Guyana. And that is actually a program that's also part of the IndyFly Foundation. They you know, go into these exotic locations, work with kind of the local communities to establish a fishing program or lodge that's actually ran by the, the local people. So it's, it's a really cool program.
1: And it's programs like these that create jobs and encourage local communities to value populations of these fish that are disappearing. Go catch yourself a river monster and have a great time with Yellow Dog. For more info, visit yellowdogflyfishing.com. We're also sponsored by Scott Fly Rods. I called up Scott Pro, Masa Katsumata, to see why he trusts Scott Fly Rods. When
0: I
2: was 10 years old, I started fly fishing. So my first Scott was fiberglass, seven foot five-piece five rods. And since then, I probably bought more than 100, 120 rods, many brands.
0: When
1: I buy a new one, I sold the uh, old rods. But he never sold his old Scott rods. They stayed in his fishing room. Masa said he even made his wife go to the Scott fly rod factory during their honeymoon. Because I love Scott so much. Yeah,
0: Scott
2: is uh, the most important brand in my life. I I made a lot of girlfriends, lots of girlfriends. But Scott is my wife, cannot divorce.
1: If you're looking for a new spouse, Check out Scott Fly Rods at your local fly shop or scottflyrod.com. Okay, back to the show. Jeremy Wade was just starting to hypothesize why these huge fish are disappearing around the world.
2: As to why these apex predators have gone missing, leaving just the crumbling ruins of the biological pyramids that once supported them, the obvious explanation is overfishing. That's harvesting at a rate that cannot be replaced. And from what I've seen, overfishing is certainly a big factor. Although freshwater fish don't feature as a huge part of the diet in Europe and North America, in other parts of the world it's a different story. In the Amazon, eating fish is always used to make sense given the amount of water and the small numbers of people. For a long time, arapaima were left alone. What's the point of trying to catch one if you don't have a refrigerator unless you can eat 120 pounds at a sitting? But then came the Portuguese colonists with their tradition of eating salted cod. In the absence of cod, arapaima became cod substitutes and a major cash crop for river dwellers. Every family would accumulate a stash of fillets like man-sized kippers, which they sold to traveling middlemen. The original way to catch arapaima was with a harpoon with a breakaway shaft and a strong cord attached to the head. This sounds like a very unproductive way to hunt fish. And it would be were it not for the Arapima's need to come to the surface every half hour or so to gulp air. Its secret weapon was now its Achilles heel. But a harpoon becomes ineffective when the fish numbers start to fall. And the arapaima population might have stabilised at a lower level had it not been for the arrival of nets. I've seen firsthand how teams of fishermen net arapaima. If a lake is landlocked, they will drag and carry their canoes through the forest, sometimes a couple of miles. They will wait until they see a big fish surface, and then in stealth mode, gradually pen it in. Eventually, they will try and make it bolt into the net. The fish are still no pushover. If they've been targeted before, they can show uncanny powers of evasion. I've seen them jump over a net. They can slip underneath if the fishermen have not made sure that it hangs cleanly all the way to the bottom. And on one occasion, I witnessed a tiny bob of the net float, which signalled a fish inserting its snout into the mesh, then expanding its head to break a hole for its body to slip through. That fish deserved to live. But the fishermen are very highly motivated, and having seen them in action, I now understand why arapaima have become almost non-existent in much of the Amazon. Cheap monofilament nets... And the availability of ice have also allowed the large-scale harvesting of other Amazonian species. There's now a huge commercial fishing operation operating out of Manaus, the city of two million inhabitants at the heart of the Amazon, which was originally the global HQ of the rubber trade before becoming an industrial free trade zone to keep the Brazilian Amazon populated after the rubber boom ended. Not exactly most people's mental picture of the Amazon. And if there's overfishing in the Amazon, imagine the problems elsewhere. The demand for protein in India, for example, is so intense that some people fish with dynamite and insecticide. And yet there's something almost comforting about overfishing. If that's all it is, then it's all right. It's anemia, not cancer. It's reversible, we think. But there could be other factors at play. There is now growing awareness that dams can block breeding migrations and can alter a river's flow in other ways that have an impact on fish. Breeding can also be hit by the apparent effects of climate change. Most rivers have an annual cycle of high and low water, which varies somewhat from year to year in timing and levels, but it's broadly predictable. Fishermen whose livelihoods depend on the river watch this cycle more closely than any scientist and in places where no scientists ever go. And what they've been telling me, because my success or failure in catching my target fish also depends very much on timing, is that these water cycles have been getting increasingly unpredictable. For example, I went fishing in the creeks off the Quarantine River in Suriname and found the aggressive uh, anumara, uh, also known as the wolf fish, far harder to catch than I'd anticipated. What the locals told me was not those dreaded words, you should have been here last week, Uh, Last week, if anything, would have been even harder. No, it had been raining at a time of year when normally it never did. So low water was two feet above what it was normally with the result that the fish were spread far into the forest rather than being concentrated in the creek mouths. In Guyana, I saw turtle eggs being uncovered, then washed away from their nests in the sandbars when the water, which had been well into its annual fall, started to rise again prematurely. In the far east of Russia, I arrived on the Amur River to find huge numbers of floating dead salmon. Nothing unusual about that, except these were still full of eggs. A heat wave, unlike anything in living memory, had raised the temperature of the river water, and they basically cooked to death. Here's something more shocking. These physical changes that fishermen worldwide have have been telling me about have taken place Not over the last century, but over just the last 15 years or so. There's one other possible factor which fits more closely with our 100-year timescale. And this is something that's rather dropped off the public radar. That thing is pollution, contamination of the water by two categories of human waste, sewage and chemicals. Pollution is the dirty secret of our shiny industrial age. While the rhetoric we hear is all about competition, innovation, efficiency and the discipline of the market, the reality is that in too many cases, profits are are generated by dumping some of the costs on an unknowing public. In less prosperous countries, water pollution can be very evident if you happen to be near its source. You see it, you smell it, sometimes you feel it in your lungs. Sometimes the effects of pollution are very obvious. Last year, a slurry from a farm was released into my small local river in the UK, and the result was hundreds of dead fish floating on the surface. A couple of months ago, in Asia, I saw an animal that was being skinned alive by chemicals in the mud where it wallowed. Meanwhile, downstream, people collected that water for drinking. But normally, pollution is invisible, which helps to explain why so many of us are complacent about it. So those are my four suspects for the chronic bad health of our rivers, overfishing, dams, climate change and pollution. How if at all do these affect us and can anything be done? With overfishing the answer has to lie partly with tougher regulations. In the oceans it's estimated by the UN Environment Programme that there will be no commercially viable seafood by 2050 if nothing is done. Imagine that. If that's the prognosis for the immensity of the oceans, surely rivers, which comprise less than 0.01% of total water, are doomed. Or maybe not. Unlike the oceans, where things are largely a free-for-all, in rivers, there is a far clearer jurisdiction. And there are some success stories where the trajectory has been reversed, like the recovery, for example, of the white sturgeon population in the lower Columbia River. It's probably time we also took some personal responsibility and looked at fish consumption. Wild fish are now a luxury item. We should try to eat only fish that come from sustainable sources. Of course, aquaculture could be part of the answer as long as environmental harm doesn't cancel out any of the benefits. Recreational fishing also has a part to play. I am somewhat uncomfortable about stretches of river in poorer nations being protected in order to become playgrounds for rich foreigners, but this can bring some real local benefit. And in developed nations, catch-and-release angling demonstrably helps to keep our rivers healthy and beautiful. For proof of that, just look at Montana. What about dams? In our innocence, hydroelectric power was such a beautiful idea. Free, clean energy, thanks to the sun and gravity. But it turns out nothing's free. There are costs to be weighed. Fish such as salmon, sturgeon, and eels find their migration routes blocked. Now that we have a fuller understanding, some steps are being taken to make dams that are more fish friendly and to retrofit existing dams with fish ladders. But if migratory fish are disappearing, don't leave it too long to restock. It turns out that with some fish, knowing where to go when they get the urge to migrate, it's not totally innate. It's something they learn from other fish. If there are no older fish around to show them the way, they won't know what to do when the time comes. What to do about climate change is the subject for a whole other talk. What much of the world seems to be doing right now is hoping that the effects will all land on somebody else, like the Greenlanders I stayed with last year, who are having to shoot their sled dogs because the sea ice is fast disappearing. But if you start to consider, for example, the global ramifications of, say, the civil war in Syria, which was preceded by the country's worst drought in 900 years, then the head in the sand approach doesn't make an awful lot of sense. We seem to be equally complacent about pollution. In more prosperous, developed countries, we have the comforting belief that effluents are kept to safe levels, safe for fish and safe for us. But who decides how much of a pollutant is safe? Is there a consensus? This takes us into another big subject. Even in so-called democracies, the amount of contaminants that are present in water is largely determined by the people who put them there, people with a vested interest in business (coughs) as usual. In our modern economic and political reality, it's cheaper to spend money on political lobbying and funding than it is to clean up your act. And although it's easy to point the finger at dirty industries, large swathes of the public collude in this process by buying into the belief that regulation is always a dirty word and the almost religious belief that ever-increasing levels of consumption and hence waste production are the only way to avoid economic doom. There's also something else working here, operating at a deep mental level, which hit me with particular force a couple of months ago. I was in a car driving through a city in Asia and out the window I saw this huge expanse of of trash and it just went on and on in the form of a strip maybe 30 feet wide for a couple of miles. And the thing was it was right in front of people's houses and I knew that if I were to go into any of those houses I would be expected to remove my shoes and I would find people who prided themselves on their cleanliness and as I stared transfixed at this river of trash I realised what a disconnect there now is in the world between private space and public space. You don't always see it so dramatically but it's always there, the mental boundary between us and the world out there. Perhaps we erect this barrier because it's the only way we can deal with the increasing complexity of the world. It enables us not to think about the world too much, about the air, the soil, the rivers, about our effect on them and their effect on us. We tell ourselves they're nothing much to do with us. But rivers are everything to do with us, even those of us who don't fish. We think of rivers as channels bounded by their banks, but this is a limitation imposed by language. In reality, they are boundless, and they circulate by multiple channels not just the textbook one down to the (coughs) sea then up into the atmosphere where vapor becomes rain and snow they also flow through us as deep as it is possible to go across every cell membrane into every cell into every nucleus of every cell where the delicate chemistry that controls our bodies takes place and if you think about this it gets quite scary now we've suddenly jumped from abstract environmental stuff to personal mortality. Because what happens when the delicate chemistry of cell division goes wrong? What happens is the class of diseases that is becoming stubbornly more prevalent worldwide, which will affect one in three women, one in two men in the US. A friend of mine from university days who now works in cancer research once said to me, we know what causes cancer, it's all the chemicals we put into the environment. This, of course, is an oversimplification. There are other factors, too. But the chemical intruders in our deep internal waterscape, which have never been there before, have to be of concern to any thinking person. People often ask me if I'm scared of some of the fish that I catch, and the answer is yes. But if I pay attention and take the trouble to understand a fish, we can both come away from the encounter unscathed. What scares me? is the stuff in the water that you can't see, and the fact that what it can do to us is not fully understood, and the fact that people keep unthinkingly putting it there anyway. The trouble is, it's impossible to prove that a specific molecule of pollutant from a specific source caused a specific harmful effect in a specific body cell in a specific person. There's no smoking gun. My fear is just a gut feeling. But just last week, in a trawl of scientific literature, I came across some fascinating circumstantial evidence. An epidemiological study by Hitt and Hendricks in 2010 found a correlation between the ecological impairment of streams as measured by a number of indicators, not just what I've been doing, the apex predator. Correlation between that and human mortality rates in the surrounding areas from certain cancers. This appears to confirm that we are dependent on healthy river water as any fish. For this reason, disappearing river fish should be of the utmost concern to us all. In particular, avoidable pollution of river water should be seen for what it is not an inevitable byproduct of economic progress, but a personal affront to every one of us. I think the fish are telling us something. The question is, Will we listen? Thank you.
1: For a link to the video of Jeremy Wade's speech, visit our website, drakemag.com. It's there that you'll also find a link to the study linking river health and cancer rates. Many thanks to Jim Thal and MSU's Trout and Samonid collection for allowing us to use the audio from the lecture and for inviting Jeremy Wade to speak so openly. Before we go, let's talk a little bit about next week's episode. Jeremy Wade mentioned climate change as one of the factors that he believes is threatening our river systems. And under that header of climate change are a billion subcategories, including water levels themselves. The
2: Colorado River and its tributaries sustain nearly 30 million people across seven states and Mexico. Hard times, however, have caught up with the Colorado Drought, coupled with increasing development in the southwest have created a new reality.
0: It's all used. Every drop is spoken for. Uh, And there has been no water to naturally make to the ocean from the Colorado River now for over a decade.
1: Without enough water, there's no such thing as a river. Next week, we're going to look into some of the reasons that the Colorado River is considered the most endangered river in America. And what we can do to possibly change that. Make sure to tune in. But until then, thanks for listening. This has been the Drake Cast.